Thank you, Rosemary, and good morning, everybody. Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father, we pray that your spirit would speak clearly to us this morning. We would hear once again your words of love for us and that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus afresh, that our faith would be renewed and deepened and that we would encounter once again the good news of our salvation. Speak to us, we pray. We are listening. Amen. We uh, continue this little themed series, not, not really a series exactly, but um, an explosion of what, what good news means to us. Thinking about uh, the changes that our church is going through, thinking about what the good news of Jesus Christ means to each of us and how it might compel us and uh, enable us to share our faith with others and to invite people into the splendor, the glory of God's love. And when somebody becomes a Christian... A change happens. It's there in our passage. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Or in one translation, if in Christ, new creation. There isn't really very much else in the Greek other than that. In Christ, new creation. It means to say that something new has broken in. There is a change. Now, change can be powerful. It can be disturbing for us, can't it? It can be challenging. We were talking just this week um, in our uh, family about what it it means to grow as a child. And uh, one of our children, as he's growing, is experiencing some of the pain in the joints and the discomfort that comes from limbs lengthening and joints changing. And I was explaining and describing how when I was about 12, 13 years old, I grew, it was about eight inches in one year. Now that's a significant amount and I had terrible aches and pains in my back and in my limbs simply because I was being stretched and the the muscles were having to stretch and the joints were changing and the bones were lengthening. And it hurts. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. But it's good, because it's how we are growing. Change can be discomforting. Um, I don't know how you're feeling at the moment about this change to the new pattern of Sunday services. I think it's pretty uncomfortable. Hands up. We haven't got enough team. It's a bit stressful every week. I have to get up a bit earlier. I'm a bit underprepared. It's catching me by surprise every week. Hands up if you think it's a bit uncomfortable. Be honest. Yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable. Somebody was complaining to me just this week, why have you changed it? It used to fit perfectly for me to come at 10.30 and now what's it? Change isn't always comfortable, let's be honest about it. And sometimes, sometimes God's doing a glorious new thing, but we prefer how things were. Sometimes he's changing water into wine and we think, I'll stick with the water, thanks very much. Don't we? It's just how it is. That's never something you'll hear from me. Those who know me well, let the reader understand. Um, But we've just got to be honest about it, haven't we? Change is uncomfortable. Change causes pain, stretches us. It can be difficult. Some of us are change junkies, and we love change, and we get energized by it. Uh, I'm probably 
oriented that kind of way, I found myself just earlier imagining what we could do with these pews and whether we could sort of angle them all in so that we were a little less front-facing and a little more kind of facing one another. But I don't know. So if you come in one Sunday and it's all rearranged, you know that I've got the bug and I've been having a go at it. Some of us um, are willing to go along with the flow. Um, Some of us just find change incredibly painful and very, very difficult. And of course... There are some changes which are about a sort of, you know, an idolatry of our own control, our own power, our own grasp, doing the things that we want to do in our way uh, to all others be damned. We don't care about what they think. And that kind of change is not particularly a healthy thing. But if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Christ, we are always being transformed from water into wine. He is always reaching us in the darkness and shining light. And though we may be comfortable in the darkness, though we may prefer it, though the water may be familiar, actually Jesus has better purposes for us. He has new things that he is doing. And uh, I I chose this passage from 2 Corinthians 5 to be um, my text this morning because it's a passage that over the years has meant a great deal to me. And I'm going to try and um, explain a little bit of why that is a little later. Um... But I want to explore this theme, which I think is in it. It's headed, actually, in the Bible, in our church Bibles, the ministry of reconciliation. And that word reconciliation is very important to me. It's a word that I think helps me to understand and interpret and uh, explain my faith in Jesus Christ and why I think uh, faith in Jesus Christ is worth sharing with others. And I want to explain to you um, why, for me, reconciliation is the power, the work of God, which overcomes alienation. Alienation from one another, alienation from ourselves, and ultimately alienation from God. And alienation from one another is perhaps one of the most obvious ways of thinking about it. Alienation from ourselves is less obvious but deeply profound. And of course, our alienation from God uh, is, um, it's, well, it's life and death. Let's put it that way. It's devastating if we remain alienated from God. It's death. Uh, but to be reconciled to God means life for us. If you're wondering what alienation is, it's not the latest sci-fi movie. Um, alienation is about the estrangement, being a stranger, being at odds with one another. Um, alienation is that experience of kind of resenting other people's existence uh, for the very way in which they kind of make demands of you or make life inconvenient for you. It's the confusion when you, you, you try to communicate with somebody and they don't understand what you were saying. And there's been this gap, this barrier, this wall. That, that, that's alienation. The sense of untogetherness, the sense of separation, the sense of... Um, and alienation in, in the way we experience it is very often you know, a falling out with a friend. I was best friends. We were BFFs, you know, and, and, and we were tight as thick as thieves, as they call it, or, you know, tight as anything. And now something has changed. We got a bit too close. We aggravated one another. And now something's changed. And uh, I feel alienated from that person. And actually, it's painful to go back and revisit that and think about it. Or we might experience alienation or estrangement in a relationship with a, a parent. Um, you know, maybe you had real difficulties in your relationship with your mum or your dad or with a sibling. And uh, I met somebody just this week who was talking about uh, a big family event they want to celebrate, but one portion of the family they don't want to invite because there's an old feud, there's an old falling out. They are alienated, they're estranged, it's broken down. 
it can happen in relationships, husbands, wives, partners, um, going through that process of, you know, sometimes uh, living with one another and discovering that you feel like you're living with a stranger because alienation has taken hold, estrangement has taken hold, uh, and you thought that you were one kind of thing, one kind of relationship, and you've discovered that actually something has pulled you apart. Deeply painful, deeply painful. Um, And alienation is, in a way, one of the most powerful destructive forces in the world around us. It causes anger, chaos, divides, hurts, feuds, bitterness, all kinds of things. But it is not how we were made to be. It is not how humankind was meant to exist. Humans were made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means to be made in the image of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An eternal, beautiful dance of love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal, eternally loving one another. Love flowing between the persons of the Trinity, held together in perpetual relationship. No alienation within the, the eternal life of God. And we were made in that image. We were made to experience that kind of uh, flow of love that always begins with our self-giving love. That's the pattern of love that we see in Christ, self-giving love. Love that empties itself, gives itself up for the sake of the other. So we weren't designed to be alienated from one another. Um, The poet John Donne, who lived here in London, not very far from here, summed it up brilliantly uh, in the 17th century when he wrote these famous words, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. It's an amazingly powerful poem that we probably are familiar with. It's been in films. It's, it's, it gets read. If you've ever studied English at school, you've probably had to sit and dissect it. And it's this wonderful picture of the way in which human relationships were meant to exist in God's economy. Living with one another, loving one another, knowing that our own existence, our own being is contingent upon the well-being of the other. That's why in Romans, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Or in Corinthians, he says... Um, you are members of one body. You can't say, the hand cannot say to the eye, I have no need of you. If one suffers, all suffer. And so this image that John Donne ends with of hearing the bell tolling and thinking, oh, somebody's died, there's a funeral on. Go and find out who's died. He's saying you don't need to go and find out who's died. If anybody has died, a part of you has died. You are diminished. We were made to be piece of the continent, a part of the main, members of one body. We are made to be reconciled to one another. And one of the things that happens when we become a Christian is that God begins to overcome the alienation that affects us, the alienation between our lives, and he begins to reconcile us. It happens sometimes in peculiar uh, and uh, not even noticeable ways there and then at the time. I became a Christian when I was 14 and um, 
the year or year and a half before I had become a Christian, I had a, I'd had a very difficult relationship with my mother, an only child brought up by a single mum, and uh, quite a difficult relationship in lots of ways. And it had resulted in me cutting off all contact. So for a year and a half, 18 months, I, I didn't speak to my mother at all. I didn't want any contact because actually every kind of contact was just too painful for me. It, it brought up old wounds. It brought up a sense of... Um, senses in which I felt like a failure, all kinds of painful things that I couldn't deal with. And I became a Christian at 14, and over the course of the next two years, I gradually began to re-establish contact with my mother. And actually what happened, and I don't think I would have said it this way at the time, was that I was forgiving her. I was forgiving her some of the hurts. Uh, I was probably um, learning to receive God's forgiveness as well for some things that I had done which had caused a hurt or a rift. And we were being reconciled. Now, anybody who is a parent or a child, and I think that includes all of us in here, um, knows that relationships with our parents can remain complicated throughout our lives. There's no relationship like that of a parent and a child. It's always going to have some peculiar dynamics. But by God's grace, my mother and I were reconciled. It was part of the change that God was doing when I became a Christian. He was overcoming the alienation that we were experiencing and reconciling us one to another. It happens as well um, in the relationships we have with our friends and in the relationships we have with those uh, with whom we have romantic affections. Sarah and I, um, I've got the eyebrows have raised. What are you going to say, she's thinking to herself. Um, Sarah and I uh, started going out in 2003. I'm going to get nods or a cross head if I get it wrong. And um, we went out with one another for about um, six months or so. Uh, do people still calling it going out with each other? Boyfriend, girlfriend? I think that's what... I'm looking at Angela and Angela, why are you looking at me? <laughs> to Chikku, do people still calling it going out with one another? No. All right. I'll get a language update later. Um, dating. Do people call it Dating. Really? Okay, well, whatever we call it, you know what we're talking about. You know, holding hands, should we call it? (laughs) Romantic. Um, Stepping out together. Um, (laughs) This isn't... Yeah, this isn't quite what was on my script. But um, anyway, look, you know how the story ends, but you don't necessarily know the middle bit of the story, which is that we broke up. Um, We broke up our relationship uh, in October of 2003. And um, there was an alienation. There was an estrangement between us, and it was painful. And and we were both members of the same church, and we had the same friendship group, so that was awkward. Um, But we were both determined that we were... Well, I worked for the church, so I had to turn up. Um, uh, But we were both members of the church, and we were committed to our friendship group and committed to where we were. Uh, So we kept on going, and we gave each other kind of a bit of space. Um, but actually, there was, there, was, there was an alienation. There was an estrangement. What was that alienation caused by? Well, probably it was to do with um, something around unrealistic expectations of the other and the self on both of our sides. Um, maybe trying to invest too much into the relationship, more than it could really bear in the wrong way. It's very easy to make 
an idol of any relationship, isn't it? To feel that your entire fulfillment, and, and whether that's a romantic one or whether that's with your BFF, whether it's your best friend forever, you know, to say, all of my fulfillment will come now from this friendship, this relationship. You do it with parents, do it with children as well. Now that I have children, everything in life will be fine. My goodness me. <laughs> if any of you think that, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, no. Um, but we invest relationships in too much stuff, don't we? Again, God, thankfully, graciously, um, overcame that alienation. And through a process, we ended up spending time together and stepping out together again. And you know how the story ends. We're married. I want to be really honest with you, though, and, and say something about why it was that we broke up and why we got back together. And I think it's because I wasn't actually loving Sarah for who she was. I think I was trying to love myself in Sarah. Um, and that's a real danger in any of our relationships. It's a real risk when what we're really doing is we're looking for the part of ourselves which is reflected to us in another person. And we are only really appreciating the way in which they make us feel good about ourselves as though they were a mirror to us. Well, that's narcissism. That's vanity. That's sort of looking for a version of yourself in somebody else that you can love, that you can fall in love with and it's actually a kind of self-love it's not self-giving love it's looking to bolster your own self-esteem and your own identity and for me the truly liberating moment uh, was learning to look at Sarah as who she had been made by God and learning to appreciate all the wonderful things about her that were not at all like me and thank goodness that there are so many ways in which she's not at all like me because what an awful couple we would be if just imagine two versions of me you wouldn't be able to tolerate it um and, and actually, you know, and then of course we change and, you know, we build a life together and it, and it changes us. But God overcomes um, the alienation that we experience from one another through reconciliation. And that's a work of the Spirit of God in us. That's a work of Christ healing us and restoring us to that original design that we have. And, and here I morph onto my second point, which is about alienation from ourselves. Because what I just said to you about... Um, what it meant to learn to love Sarah uh, for who she was and not simply trying to love a version of myself in Sarah is about the kind of weird stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Because we are alienated from ourselves. We're alienated from the different versions of ourselves through history. I don't know about you, but if you know somewhere deep down that you've done something really stupid or really unkind or really hurtful or really foolish, what we tend to do is we tend to try and compartmentalize it and squash it into the past. We try to refuse that part of our identity because it can be too painful. We can feel too embarrassed. The shame is too much to bear. And we want to kind of present ourselves to the world around us just as we are now or just in the version of ourselves that we want to project into the world. We can be alienated from ourselves. We can live with a disintegrated story, a disintegrated story, where we don't like to acknowledge all of the history of ourself that got us to this place. One of the things I find very inspiring about Steve, actually, is that in my relationship with Steve over the years, uh, he's struck me as somebody who is really, really good at holding on to all the different stages of his life and being very honest about every sing single part of that. And that actually he doesn't, he's not burdened by this kind of sense of shame or embarrassment about the past, but has been able to build that into this, test me, the glory of what God has done in his life. 
And I'm mean, sure that's true of many of you as well. I just, you know, Steve has shared that from the front here in the past, and uh, I find it really powerful and encouraging. I love, um, I've told you this story before, but the story of, uh, in the 1970s, um, an hung, uh, Australian-Hungarian man named Laszlo Toth was visiting um, the Vatican and Michelangelo's Pieta sculpture, glorious uh, sculpture of um, Mary and uh, Jesus, um, cradling Jesus' uh, body after his uh, deposition, after he came down from the cross, um, was on display and people were visiting and Laszlo Toth jumped over the barrier and attacked it with a hammer and started smashing this um, masterpiece into pieces and the pieces were scattered all over the floor and there was shock and he was arrested and it took them several years to painstakingly recover all of the fragments all of the pieces and put them all back together and I love that image that the way it serves is us as broken masterpieces that's what each of us is, we are a broken masterpiece and God is painstakingly taking the shards and the fragments and piecing them back together and making us into uh, restoring in us that original image, that original design. How does it happen? Well, each of those shards, sharp and pointy as they are, represent those different parts of our lives that we prefer to shut away and forget about. And the work of forgiveness, God's forgiveness, is the recovery of truthful memory about our past. The times when we were hurt, we were hurt beyond what we could bear, and we can't deal with the pain of those relationships or those hurts, so we, we, we segment them, we put them away, we squash them, we hide them. The times when we hurt others, and actually we're really ashamed of it, but we know that we said unkind things, we acted in cruel ways. We don't want to carry it into our being here and now because we're embarrassed by it, because that doesn't seem like a Christian thing to do. Um, the gift of forgiveness is knowing that God has forgiven those things. And we can be truthful in our memory of them. We can be truthful in the way we integrate them into our lives because God has forgiven us, because we are forgiven. T.S. Eliot, uh, another poet, poet that I really admire, uh, has in the four quartets, he says, a people without a history is not redeemed from time. You're not set free. You don't really experience God's, experience God's liberty if all you do with history is squash it and pretend it's not there. If all you do is put it away, trying to be ashamed and embarrassed of it, hiding it, you're not really free. What you then are is you are enslaved to the eternal now, to the eternal now that the, the, the presentation of yourself here and now that you have. You're not an integrated person. Rowan Williams talks about the whole of ourself being present to God, or rather God being present to the whole of ourselves. And he says that that means that's the whole of ourself through time as well. God is eternal. God exists through time. And so God, in, as it were, is present to you as a five-year-old child, just as he is present to you now as a, whatever it is, a 55-year-old woman or a 40-year-old man. God is present to the whole of your life, and he sees the whole of who you are in an integrated wholeness and forgives at every stage. And yet what we tend to do is we try to shut off in time this one moment right here. That's not how God exists in relation to us. He is present to the whole of our lives. And the whole of ourselves, the whole of our lives, are the sphere of his saving work. So we can be alienated from one another. And when we become a Christian, God can begin a work of reconcil reconciliation that brings us back together. We can be alienated from ourselves internally 
estranged from the versions of who we are. And when we become a Christian, God reconciles us and reintegrates us so that we know that we are forgiven and we have a truthful memory of who we are. How then is this possible? Well, it's possible because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. We would only have this, this, this model of self-giving love which reconciles us to one another and this model of forgiveness which allows us to be reconciled to the histories of ourselves. We only have that because Jesus has given it to us, because God in Christ has given it to us on the cross, because he has poured out his self-giving sacrificial love to forgive us to open the door to new life, to overcome the power of sin and death, to take on all that would rip us apart and alienate us from one another and to join it back together. It's the sacrificial love of God expressed in Christ in the cross that is transformative and changes us. That's why I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Because that's really what this passage says. It says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, verse 19, and he is not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. All that God has done through Christ on the cross, that message, it's given to us to share with the world. What's the heart of the message? God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that all of the sin and alienation, all of the death and decay would be destroyed in Jesus' body rather than ours. All the destructive force of rebellion against God would be dealt with on the cross in Jesus' body so that it need have no power over us anymore so that we in Jesus, in Jesus who is resurrected, might become the righteousness of God. It's an exciting vision. And verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Well, I think that's what this is. To fear the Lord is to stand in awe of the one who has done all this for us, the one who has overcome our alienation, who has reconciled us to one another, has reconciled us within ourselves and reconciled us to him. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. And I think, from my point of view, when I think about why do I want to tell people about Jesus, why do I want to share the good news well, it's for everything I've just talked about. It's because I, I, I meet people sometimes who are experiencing incredible alienation within their families, within their relationships, who, who feel incredibly conflicted within themselves. And like, you can have peace. You can experience forgiveness. You can know that God loves you perfectly, the whole of you, just as you were then, just as you were then, just as you are now, and just as you will be. He's transforming you, yes. He's changing you, yes. But he's never stopped loving you. It's his love which is helping you change. I want to tell people that. Because why would you sit there with somebody who is in agony, who is in pain, who is in distress, and just say, yeah, not my problem. You know, it's, we've got this incredible news to share. It's plain before God what is happening. And verse 16 From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I think that's really important to us. When Jesus gives us a vision on the world, if you like, from his vantage point on the cross, or his vantage point now ascended at the right hand of the Father, 
we see a vision of men and women, children, people of all ages, of all ethnicities, all nationalities, all cultures. And we don't see people according to those different divisions or distinctions. We see people according to who they were made to be in Jesus Christ. And that can be transformative in and of itself. Actually, you know, we know what it's like when we meet somebody and our first thought is, oh, they look a bit funny. I don't like them. They're a bit up themselves. They're a bit self-involved. Or I don't really like their politics. Or I don't like them. Well, they've got money. They must be a bad person. Um, you know, or uh, they dress funny. Wh- whatever it is, we've got to get beyond those first worldly ways of viewing people. And look on one another as I'm looking on each of you now as women, men, children made in the glorious image of Christ, made in the glorious image of God, and destined, purposed to be reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. And that's why we implore people, verse 20, be reconciled to God. If anyone's in Christ, new creation has come. Change in our lives can be painful, change in our church life can be painful. But remember, um, remember why we are making changes in the life of our church. It's so that we have more space, more time, more opportunity to invite our neighborhood to be reconciled to God and to draw people into the glorious joy of worshiping him and experiencing his presence. Amen. John is going to lead us in intercessions.